This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Scenarios that introduce cities. Dead Sea forgeries. Generational issues. And grab a boy numbers. Robin is known for his stylish convention shirts. But you know who's really stylish? Who's that, Robin? Lumberjacks and bears in the Yukon. Mm, uh, so say our friends at Atlas Games in the form of their new game, Yukon Salon. A quick, humorous, and family-friendly card game that comes in a tin. Oh yeah, that's the one where you're a stylist in the frozen north and your clients are bears and lumberjacks. Hairdo cards rotate so they're beards for the lumberjacks or hairstyles for the bears. You match each style in your repertoire to just the right client and roll to see if they like it. If you fail, you make outrageous claims to get a bonus and keep them from walking out. Bears have hair, lumberjacks have beards, and they both need your help. Yukon Salon is available now, so take your place at the frontier of style today. You can learn more at atlas-games.com or follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut and across the table of the gaming hut. Look at that, Robin. It's a big old map. There's streets. There's sewers. I think there's electrical conduit, maybe, depending, I guess, who can say, unless those are ley lines. But there's lots of buildings, lots of people, lots of miniature butchers and bakers and... A lot of town watchmen. Yeah, that's, Our miniatures budget has gone way up for this segment. They are going to need a lot of town watchmen. They may even need some models. Because our beloved Game Master, which is you, the listener, are going to be hurled hip deep into Urban Adventure, the other white meat of Dungeons & Dragons and of all RPGs ever since. And how do you, how do you introduce a city, Robin? If the city is not, I don't know, London or Chicago or Saigon, where you can say, you basically know the city. Let's go. <laughs> and even some people, I hesitate to say, don't know London or Chicago or Saigon as well as they do. So this could even have some practicality for uh, people who play correctly. So what do we got? How do we, how do we make a city come alive? Yeah. I, I would say this is absolutely just as applicable to real life uh, cities as made up cities because the city in your game is, you know, your Chicago in a Delta Green, uh, Fall Delta Green game is different than your Chicago in a Trail of Cthulhu game is different from uh, Chicago in an Esoterra game. Right. Uh, and so it's not, you know, here's a travelogue, look at this, but what does the city mean in this context? What, is, what are we doing in the city? And uh, longtime listeners are hearing me edge toward a thing that I always say. In fact, they're repeating after me core activity. The first thing you want to think about is what is it that the uh, player characters are expected to do in this city? It's implicit to this discussion that if you're introducing a city, you're also going to be following up and having other things happen in that city. It's not just a, a one shot, but you're setting the stage either at the beginning of a, a series or midway through when they've moved to a new place to the sorts of things that are going to happen in the city. So the first thing to ask yourself is what is the core activity urban environments 
generally suggest the core activity of uh, mystery and or intrigue. And uh, I think those uh, go together like uh, uh, peanut butter and marshmallow fluff. Uh, but uh, some people uh, would look at those as separate, that there's uh, an intrigue game and a, a mystery investigation game and, and never the, the uh, twain shall meet. And then, of course, there's the fact that you can just have just as fighty a game uh, in a city as anywhere. You can have uh, a situation where, you know, the main action every night is a big old fight, and then there are repercussions that, that affect the city. So I uh, know if what it is. superheroes have taught us nothing, Robin, yes. besides, you know, enjoy Hostess Fruit Pies, they've taught us right. that cities are a great place to have fights all the time. Exactly. So know what it is that you're trying to set up uh, and start with that uh, core activity would be the first one. So if it's uh, if this is a city of fights, have a fighty first adventure. If this is a city of uh, political intrigue, uh, make sure that political intrigue is the uh, focus of it, and uh, so on down the line. If it's about mysteries, uh, there's a big old mystery uh, that uh, they can follow, and so they will feel that they're having a pilot episode, something that is sort of a typical session of what you're going to be running through for their duration of their stay in this city. So again, having determined that, what's our next step in designing the scenario? Well, the scenario should, as you say, it should contain, encompass, illustrate the core activity. It should also, I feel, introduce at least one and ideally two or three of the main players in the city in terms of the factions, you know, the big bads, the good and the two less goods. However, you've broken your city out. So if your city is Chicago in the 20s, maybe your game should introduce Al Capone and the Southside mob. It should introduce Jaime Weiss or Dan O'Banion if you're doing it after Jaime Weiss got murdered and the Northside gang. And it should introduce, you know, whatever the third force is in your game, whether that's the cops or the uh, heroic newspaper reporters or, you know, the third force of arcane lay artists who operate out of the University of Chicago and are trying to assemble city magic out of the stuff they've been digging up in uh, Babylon on the other side of the world. I mean, whatever your third force is, they should have a, a look in. And it may be that your characters are being presumed to be either in the employ or in the orbit of one of those three forces. And that's a great way. So you're, you're called into Capone's office and he says, look, you hoods, I hear you're good at fighting and stealing things. Oh, yes, sir. We certainly are regular murder hobos, ain't you? Yep. Yep. You got it. Well, I got some hobos. I want you to murder. And he sends you off to go after O'Banion. But in the, in the, it turns out the O'Banion gang is, uh, is, uh, stealing a truck that belongs to the university. And one of the magicians shows up to stop you. And so you're like, you know, this is a city of gang war. It's a city where we'd better do what Capone says. And it's a city where, oh my God, there's magicians and weird artifacts in a truck. This is so much cooler than the game I thought I was going to be playing in. Thank you, Game Master. You're the best. The Game Master is always the best here on uh, Ken and Robin. Exactly. And so that points to a couple of things. One, here, don't be afraid to keep it simple. Again, you're trying to do the absolute bog standard version of, of this and you can get fancy later. So another approach, uh, as opposed to just having, assuming they're going to say yes to Capone is yeah. to drop them into a situation where they're going to need an ally or patron and then have them find in the course of the uh, scenario who it is that they want to uh, buddy up with. So uh, Capone is one of the choices uh, or uh, possibly they can go to the cops who aren't sweethearts either. Spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> and it's, it's a longer, slightly more expensive way of going to Capone. Also spoiler. <laughs> right. Uh, or, you know, or whatever the third force is, right. Uh, yeah. You know, so maybe you 
wind up initially thinking you're fighting the sorcerers who are hijacking the trucks, but at the end you find out, oh no, that they have pretty good benefits. Yeah. <laughs> and and also drop relatively fewer of their enemies into the lake. So yeah, good for you, sorcerers. Yeah, or you may find out that all three factions have real problems, as do the cops, and it will be up to you as doughty crusaders for good to go out and fix the situation over a series of, of fights and uh, truck heists. Right. Um, one more thing about the premise before we move on to uh, developing it a bit is make sure that your structure is not about being led around by a tour guide. This is something you occasionally see in fiction and even more often see in uh, role-playing scenarios, particularly older ones. Make sure that the players get to decide things and decide things pretty early and sort of be on their own and make the choices of where they go in the city. So uh, obvious point, except it's a point people, not everybody's taken on board yet. So make sure that it is a multi-linear, not single linear, that it has, you know, you can decide to go to this city location or this city location, and then it will lead you to another city location. So make sure it's not somebody leading them around and make sure that they have choices to make as to uh, where to go. Now, um, let, let, let me let me real fast, Robin, jump in. And I don't want to push back on this because it is a good advice. You generally don't want the opening of your game to be the GM just drown, droning on for an hour. But how do you, and maybe this was where you were going anyway, how do you then, if they don't, if they're not familiar with the city, either because it's a maked up city or because they are uh, benighted people who don't understand the geography of Chicago and their very bones, how do you get them to know enough about the campaign city to usefully and uh, substantively interact with it? How do you provide that information? If you do not tour guide them, which is legitimate and strong and correct, how do, how do they tour the city then and uh, make sure and how do you, the GM, make sure that they know, oh, yeah, there's stockyards here. There's a lot of animals being killed every minute in Chicago. That's a big thing. Right. Well, I think here's where our, our campaign cartographer uh, sponsors uh, jump in. Uh, <laughs> a beautiful map that you spread out before them. That is, And uh, as we know, a map is nothing if not a collection of unanswered questions, right? So you spread out the map, you go, here's here's the city. And of course, you may be using the premise that the characters know the city, even though the players do not. So you can say, so here's a quick overview. Here's the neighborhoods. And uh, your characters have been here for a little while. What sort of things would you be doing in the city? And you can sort of give them sort of a pregame idea of, of where they are. And certainly there's a difference between being led around by a tour guide and stopping to ask directions. Mm -hmm. So if you decide, oh, no, we have to go to the, we got to find the skeevy part of town because that's uh, obviously we're, we're looking for a forger. We're not going to find uh, the forger probably in the rich part of town. Let's go down to, you know, the forger's pub. Where's that? Mm -hmm. And then you can describe the neighborhood as they uh, enter it on stage for the first time, which brings us to our next point is construct the scenario so that the character's travel through the urban geography of the city and hit a bunch of uh, geographical high points. And of course, the most obvious way to do that is to uh, take them on a journey from uh, low to high or high to low uh, so that they are going to uh, different parts of the city with different degrees of uh, power and money. And uh, the way to do that, you can, you know, do the standard sort of handoff or rod of seven parts type structure, or you can present the players with the with the problem, how do we get this truck? And as they solve it, you make sure that the 
answers point to the next question. So they're like, okay, we need to hijack a truck. We have our guns. We're, we're going to, you know, go figure out where the truck's going to go. Well, the, the place to watch for that is from the, you know, top of the, the, the border trade or whatever. And so your interest, you're introduced to the skyscrapers. And then from there, you know, you can be able to present a, a chat or a challenge or a question, even better, as you say, that leads them to say, Oh, now I'm curious about that weird green glow in the South. What's that? And, uh, as they go uh, closer to it, they discover that it's, um, you know, a, a, a jumping jazz garden. And so now they're, you know, Oh, all right. I see that we're doing this thing now. And that, gives them more information about the the truck drivers or you're not the first guys to come around asking about that truck. And so they, you know, have a trail to follow that may lead them, you know, through whatever aspects of the high to the low or the, the elves to the dwarves, even if it's not a, an explicit high low, the different subcultures within your city, you, you know, the, the, the vibe at the, at the South side jazz palaces is different from the vibe at the green mill on the North side, even though they're both playing jazz uh, and not just because the South side jazz palaces are full of black musicians and the green mill is full of white musicians. There's a lot more going on in the city, in any city than that, whether it's a, a pretend city or an actual city. Right. And as you go along, you can drop little hints for later scenarios. So it may be that they are dazzled by the singer who uh, performs at this uh, particular jazz club and they feel a strange sensation uh, as as they watch her. But that doesn't turn out to be a big thing. She maybe has a piece of information that they have, but there's something that they remember about her that they want to go back to later. So you can also start to kind of fill out little hints and, and lay pipe and set the scene for uh, later scenarios as you go. And the other thing about a, a big introductory city adventure is, again, don't be afraid to do the obvious. If there's a big landmark uh, in your city, whether it is the uh, Eiffel Tower or the Axis Mundi or the World Tree being nibbled by the uh, uh, sinister magical squirrel, there's no shame in having the uh, final confrontation or revelation or big old fight uh, right there that has led you to the signature site of the uh, city. And even if you don't do that, uh, think about making the final location a big, impressive one that somehow tells you something about the city. So if you end up at Al Capone's uh, Manor, uh, that's maybe not the first destination you go to on the tourist map, but it's still a big old deal that feels uh, like a, a culmination. Uh, and so that you're uh, building the geography uh, and having it escalate just as much as you're building the uh, tension and danger. Well, once you're in Al Capone's mansion, uh, as we all know, the most important thing is how to get back out. And in our case, I think we're going to sneak through this big old pile of bootleg commercials that he has stashed in the back. Axis, mighty capital of the Dragon Empire. Markets flow with goods and gold. Ambitious nobles rise and fall. Knives flash in reeking alleys. While the metallic dragons who guard the Empire watch over it all. Something murderous lurks beneath the gladiatorial arena. And your adventurers 
are just the heroes to confront it. In Crown of Axis, an introductory 13th Age adventure by Wade Rocket from Pelgrane Press. Play as a one-shot or as a campaign starter. Customizable based on characters' icon relationships. Delve into danger by getting the PDF today. Cardus listeners can use the voucher code HASHCROWN21, that's CROWN21, to save... 15%. At PelgranePress.com slash shop. That's Crown of Access for 13th Age. Well, it's time once more to uh, head over to the desk in our well-appointed police commissioner's parlor and uh, check over at the desk where the crime blotter has been laid out before us. But this time the crime blotter has, like, old ink and there's some uh, ancient leather and uh, some pots of weird glue, uh, because uh, we're going to talk about forgery, and we're going to talk not just about any old uh, bunch of fake manuscripts, but uh, some Dead Sea Scrolls that turned out to be dead. They might have been scrolls, but they weren't from the original sea that they're supposed to be from, because we're looking at the story of how the uh, Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., which is owned by Steve Green of the Hobby Lobby craft supply chain, I guess is what it is. We don't have mm-hmm. them up here. S- set up this museum of the Bible. He's a, a, a literal believer and he wants a literal believable artifacts. And uh, some of them turned out to be uh, not quite so believable because they bought a bunch of fragments of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you've ever seen a picture of the Dead Sea Scrolls or seen other similar documents anywhere in a museum, you know, they're little bits of brown curled up paper, which you can hardly read. And it's hard to imagine anyone being able to decipher the writing on them. Well, it turns out a whole bunch of them surfaced around uh, 2002, about 70 of them circulated through the document hounds of, of the Levant. And uh, it turns out after scientific study that the 16 fragments that Hobby Lobby bought, along with probably all of them, are <laughs> yeah. 20th century fakes. So these were uh, bought for a million uh, all together, not just the Hobby Lobby one, but this set of fake documents uh, netted somewhere between 35 to $40 million retail. So nice forgery work if yeah. you can get it. Huh, good, good job. That, uh, that will pay for a lot of old shoes. Which it turns out, instead of being parchment, is what it was on. It was on uh, shoe leather. The clever folks at the Art Fraud Insights team, and by the way, way to, you know, uh, egg the pudding there, Art Fraud Insights team, um, they said, this isn't smooth. And someone probably said, but it's 2,000 years old. How could it be smooth? And they said, but if it was 2,000 years old, wouldn't the ink not be in the cracks? And then they looked, and sure enough, the ink had runnelled down into the cracks. So the leather was cracked when it was being wrote on, which means it was probably not parchment, because parchment is literally the opposite of that. And then they began to look at some of the other chemical questions. So, for example, very old parchment slowly gives off, because it's made from, like, the skin of a goat. It gives off little bits of uh, goat goo. It's a collagen breakdown. Right. The, the collagen in it right. turns into goo. It's like if you've kept a sausage in the fridge for, you know, too long and your <laughs> sausage has got that smear of goo on it. Well, this is uh, a sausage that had been kept in a cave for 2000 years. And sure enough, it gets a smear of goo on it. And so they said, well, it's got goo. And they checked the goo and the goo, it turns out, was animal glue that the uh, fake fragments had been soaked in to make it look gluey. 
So they had uh, a problem there. Um, they had the problem with the lumps and bumps, as we mentioned previously. And they also began to have a couple of questions about the composition of the ink as well. I think that they were looking at it and they said, this is looking a little bit like charcoal ink with the wrong carbon content and stuff like that. So there was a lot of little tells that the uh, art fraud guys put together. They put it together because say what you want about the Hobby Lobby guy, about Mr. Green, and I believe we have, I think he's been in the show before in the case of the smuggled artifacts when he accidentally, question mark, bought a bunch (laughs) of looted tablets from an Iraqi museum and maybe also some Egyptian biblical artifacts that no one was supposed to take out of Egypt. Yes, he did have to repatriate to both Iraq and Egypt. Yes, he did. So, and I believe we talked about his poor choice of tablet collections at one point, but now he's back in the news with his poor choice of dead scroll dealers to trust. And, you know, to his credit, he he knew that his Museum of the Bible was already on probably pretty shaky grounds with museum professionals. And so he you know, splashed out more Hobby Lobby money. He paid for the full workup. There is, I guess, fairness compels us to say there is one leading Dead Sea Scrollist. Maybe the Dead Sea Scrollist was hoping to get a gig with the museum who said, well, you haven't looked at the actual Dead Sea Scrolls under an electron microscope. So for all we know, they're bumpy and all the ink is run. And people said, now a manual. What are the odds of that? And he had to he had to sit down very quietly after that. Yeah, there's always a holdout who refuses yeah. to let go of the dream. Always somebody. And in fairness, the first maybe this is a forgery question was raised by the guy who co-authored the book on these cool new scrolls for the Bible Museum. And so just doing the research, he's like, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> I have a bad not. feeling about this. So the, the the scrolls ultimate source in this case is a antiquities dealer named Khalil Iskandar Shaheen, a.k.a. Kondo, which, by the way, love to, love to hear about it, and his son, Bill Kondo. Oh, no, Khalil Iskandar's my dad. You just call me Kondo. He's the guy that sold off the, this uh, second tranche of 70 fragments in 2002 for all that lovely money. And I guess the question is, is Bill Kondo the forger or the forger hirer, or did Bill Kondo turn a blind eye to the provenance of forged documents that were passed through him in the same way that the the lady at the Nobler Gallery turned a blind eye to clearly forged Rothko's back in uh, the turn of the century. So at some point, Bill Kondo is, is, is not free of stain in this. And the question, I guess, is where along the line did the did the swap out and the forgery happen? Was this something that happened at his instigation or was this something that just kind of happened and he was there to give a imprimatur and take his percent of the thirty five million? Right. Because, of course, it turns out that the whole antiquities world until very recently, (coughs) currently is, (laughs) is shot through with shadiness. And even the presumed authentic Dead Sea Scrolls also came to market. In a, in a circuitous way through <laughs> dealers. So if you don't know the archaeologist who dug it up, uh, and in that case, it's not for sale, it's going to the museum that person works for, there may be some questions and some shadiness even uh, when they are legitimate artifacts. So as far as wrapping a gaming or a nerd-troped narrative around this, uh, the first thing that I find most interesting about this is just the raw details of 
how you tell it's a forgery, right? The the yeah. goat collagen, the writing in that the falls into the cracks in the distressed surface, the use of shoe leather instead of parchment. That is all the sort of gold detail that you want in an investigative campaign in order for the character using their forgery skill to identify a forgery or their uh, document analysis, is, as, as we call it in other gumshoe games, depending which one it is. And so that's just the the sweetest little bit of documentary detail to be able to say, well, everyone else thinks this is parchment, but you, the best document analyst in the world, looks at it and goes, oh, that's obviously shoe leather, and I think uh, the shoe is ancient, and I'm going to guess it's from uh, the area of uh, possibly the foothills of Nazareth is probably where that kind of shoe comes from. And so you can, you know, gild the little a bit and add some more details, but, you know, your character is the one who's smart enough to see this stuff so that that sort of detail is like worth you know creating an entire scenario around forged uh, alleged dead sea scrolls just to be able to have the character with yeah. document analysis which he only gets to use every third scenario to, yeah. to really shine <laughs> the guy who took two points in animal glue identification is gonna be the hero today and the, the other way that you catch this uh, sort of thing, less applicable to the Dead Sea Scrolls, is obviously by analyzing the content. And in this case, the various scrolls had only tiny fragments of words. And since most of the Dead Sea Scrolls, or about, I guess, half the Dead Sea Scrolls, are bits of the Torah and the Tanakh, you don't have to, you know, guess at what the words would have been. You just copy your favorite little fragment of Isaiah or something down, and there you go. But other cases where you're trying to salt uh, the intellectual minds as opposed to just make money, you can also look at the content. And this, I think, is where some of the game juice comes from. There's a famous case called the uh, Gospel of Jesus' Wife that turned out to be an errant forgery as well. And the way that they caught that was not any of the goat glue stuff, it was that the letters were all shaped wrong and it was just the wrong handwriting for the time. And in addition to saying something dramatic, which is of course what the, the core of your adventure is, is that this is not just some little gospel fragment or, or, um, prophet fragment. This is a little prophet fragment where Isaiah mentions Nirlathotep or where something else that is wild and earth shattering in the world of your universe happens. Uh, and it may just be, you know, that there's a place in the, in the Bible where the, you know, witch of Endor summons up uh, the spirit of Samuel. And, but in this, it's, it's not the witch of Endor. It's the witch of uh, some other location. And you're like, Oh, maybe that's the true witch spot. And we have to go there and, and we can talk to the dead if we go there. But is this a forgery? Is that this our enemies trying to lead us to this witch spot uh, to ambush us with ghosts? What what's going on? And so the content of a lot of these old forgeries is also relevant. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, I should say, have plenty of weird apocalyptic uh, narratives in them as well. So if you wanted uh, something, you know, about uh, an island rising in the great southern sea and uh, the devil fish uh, stretching out his arms against God. So you can put Cthulhu right into the Dead Sea Scrolls. There yeah, you go. Not, not all of that stuff uh, made it all the way to the Council of Nicaea. Yeah, no, and a lot of it made it, and they sent them back with a. This does not suit our needs at the present time, but <laughs> please keep trying to write yeah. revelations Gospel and apocalypse. What? What? I don't, I don't feel like that's a good idea. So there's lots of apocalyptic literature that is in the real Dead Sea Scrolls. So if you want to have a phony apocalypse or a 
not phony, a uh, excitingly new and uh, game-interesting apocalypse, you could slide it right in there, and then you will get scholars that say, oh, there's no such thing, this is obviously a forgery, and other scholars might say, well, like uh, our buddy Emmanuel uh, Tov uh, might say, well, I don't know, there's a lot of crazy stuff in the real Dead Sea Scrolls, who's to say? And uh, then, in addition to, was this forged, possibly by esoterrorists, you can also be saying, but is the content real? Is it forged based on some actual piece of occult lore that uh, they're trying to get out into the mainstream and that we have to snuff off at the source? And is the source the forger or is the source some other place that they've picked up this this text, right? Right. And if your series is Dan Brown, but good, you <laughs> can, I think, find a lot of hay in the uh, searching back through the murky interconnected world of uh, antiquities documents vending in order to sort of wend your way to whoever it is who released this document and find out uh, because it makes a difference whether the gospel of Lucifer is real or just a really good fake. And uh, Mm -hmm. you know, who, who might you find at the, at the end of that supply chain is like, Oh, Look, look, look who's writing on this old shoe. He's <laughs> have a couple of horns. It's and Lucifer. It's otherwise, otherwise very good looking, but the horns, they're off-putting. Uh, so that could, uh, you know, take you in all sorts of, you know, book hounds, uh, but in the antiquities world yep. could be, uh, you know, a whole uh, series unto itself. Because, yep. you know, once you start turning up weird documents and get involved in that world, People start coming to you with things. And, and and when there are things with unclear provenance that bring in 35 to $45 million, it's not just weedy scholars that get themselves involved on either side. So while I say nothing against Bill Kando, I'll bet Bill Kando knows a guy who knows a guy. And uh, certainly the fictional Bill Kando does. Yeah, right. Yes. There's, there's people who will be very interested in getting their cut of those $35 million and very interested in not revealing where the actual fragment came from. Because again, as uh, we've noted in the previous episode, it could be a real fragment that got illegitimately uh, looted from a real museum. And that's how it got out onto the market, not just a a forging method or even a, a, a real find. And so the whole chain of provenance could be criminal and the criminals who got, you know, paid eight hundred dollars to to smash a museum case hear about it in the news and maybe they're coming after you that maybe they want their percentage so there's lots of great characters who can join they make the bookhounds uh milieu look actually like the sort of um uh the 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 the, the kitty slopes and this is the the big danger because it's you know various spots in in various battle zones and it's guys who are uh, not particularly interested in hearing your side of the story. They just want to know where you hid the briefcase. Yep. There's parts of that uh, area that are ineffectively policed yes. or, where <laughs> the police are available for a lot less than $40 million. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a, a, there's a lot of uh, intrigue to be had there and that could lead you to, and of course there's all sorts of uh, organizations who might be looking to uh, turn a fast buck to say mountain insurgency or install a new caliphate, so uh, that can uh, hook into, into the world of terror organizations. Spies and espionage. Yep. That can, uh, you know, your the CIA might be taking an interest in this because where's the money going? So that could, you know, blow up into a whole uh, sort of a geopolitical angle as well. Because uh, once there's once there's money and guns, uh, you've got uh, all the adventure you need. And uh, this is not. Uh, there might be some looking at things through electron microscopes, but. Uh, that's not, the, not all there is to it. And uh, the electron microscope guy is still, you know, 
they're, they're still core. It's still very important to find out because you can tell, you know, was this old leather from Egypt or was this old leather from Iraq? Was this old leather from Israel or was it from Morocco? And, you know, lots of Sherlock Holmesy. there's only one kind of dirt in the world that matches this clues are absolutely legitimate in something uh, as recondite as papyrus and parchment sourcing. Right. Because your character not only spent points in document analysis, he also put eight points in shooting and has a desert eagle. Exactly. And he's headed to the desert. Right. And it's time for us to head across this most attractive and no doubt safe desert and see what lies on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Protect this podcast as it heads uptown, downtown, and into the tunnels with such adventurous Patreon backers as... Josh King! Bill Serwin! Dan O'Hanlon! Daniel Gill! And Eric Jeppesen! It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, so let's ask Ken and Robin. Beloved Patreon backer Louis Sylvester asks... In Cinematic Daddy Issues, you discussed the baby boomers and some of their problems. Could you go through the various generations of the last century and discuss issues unique to each generation and maybe discuss how these generational issues could be used in gaming? Robin? Well, I, I'm only going to go back about 100 years, which is sort of the the dawn of kind of accessible pop culture. We've got early progenitors before that. We've got uh, Sherlock Holmes and so forth and, you know, having researched Dracula dossier and uh, Yellow King, respectively. We we could start in the Victorian era slash Belle Epoque, but traditionally the way that generations are understood to have uh, different motivating factors that are reflected in their aesthetics starts with the lost generation. This is the generation of people who have survived the incredible shock of World War One, and it turns out also the subsequent influenza epidemic, which was just as <laughs> giant and horrible shock and then everybody said let's just talk about world war one <laughs> that other thing let's just let's just totally forget that other thing yeah uh, right. which was uh, just as horrible and so the thing about uh world war one and the way it affected people and and created a new wave of avant-garde art and uh wild partying and champagne drinking even in the midst of uh, prohibition uh, was the idea that all of the old 
Edwardian verities, which used to be Victorian verities, had fallen apart. All the things that we trusted, you know, the uh, hierarchical social structure, the uh, basic safety of, of Europe, everything, the, the amount of damage that weapons could, it, like, everything just turned upside down and all the ideals were thrown overboard overnight. And also World War I is not an explicable narrative where any of that conflict makes moral sense to anybody. It's just the world fell into a giant meat grinder for stupid reasons and a whole generation of the best people went through a meat grinder and everybody else is traumatized and determined to live, live, live. So that's one of the first sort of sybaritic kind of questioning generations. And we'll begin to start to see a wave pattern in these as, as well. So can this is a classic call of Cthulhu territory rather than trail. And obviously yep. Lovecraft mm-hmm. is writing at this time. And I guess he also in his own weird, uh, you know, he thinks of himself as, you know, pre-Victorian, but in a way he's also part of the lost generation. Yeah. I mean, L- Lovecraft is, is part of, uh, as much as he hated it, he's part of modernism. He's part of the modernist project. And this is, you know, modernism is literally about breaking from the past. It's about breaking narrative. It's about breaking art. It's about breaking architecture. It's about taking things that have been done because we always did them. And they were taught by teachers who had good breeding or new people of good breeding. And they said, well, good breeding got us into world war one. Let's try just doing what we want. And Lovecraft is doing that modernist break with horror with the Gothic. And he says, no one can legitimately believe in ghosts and vampires. Now you just have to move on and, and find something that matters. And, and so Lovecraft is part of that scene, even as he is attempting to present this knowledge in the aesthetic tradition of Nathaniel Hawthorne and much farther back, even than that. So there is an interesting sort of divergence there between the aesthetic and the, the goal of the, of, of the work. And I think that you can see that other lost generation authors sort of went the other way that they presented basically timeless stories. Man falls for boss's daughter, but they tried to do it in, in aesthetic ways that, that broke molds and, and broke tradition. And this was because the tradition had literally proven itself worthless. And even if you were an American, once you got into the war to save democracy and you came back out and you noticed that all the democracies had basically just been sold back down the river and nothing had been accomplished. You, you had the same sort of reaction and you got to have that reaction usually in France where you had the only strong currency. So that adds to sort of the economic basis of the, uh, of the live, live, live uh, ethos is that you actually can afford champagne and maybe growing up in Kansas or wherever you never even saw champagne. But now you're, you're sort of suddenly exposed to a bunch of new stuff. And I think that this is where a lot of the American modernists come from, is that sort of shock of exposure to Europe, unmediated by, say, a New York art gallery or something else, or unmediated by being rich American aristocracy doing a grand tour before you come back and marry someone in Kansas. Right. And so the uh, 1930s begin in 1929 with the stock market crash and the worldwide a recession that follows in its wake. And this is basically the decade that says to the 20s, you know all that trauma-induced partying you did? Well, here's way more trauma. I'll give you something to cry about. Yeah. As- Foreshadowing <laughs> even worse trauma. And uh, you can't afford champagne. In fact, you can't even afford socks. Right. And so this is probably the first generation that anyone listening to this podcast knew someone who you know came of age and developed in that. And you know the sort of parsimony and stoicism that was forged in people. You know, if you 
uh, have someone of that generation and you know that they keep a uh, coffee canton from the 1960s and it's full of uh, old screws and bolts because they might need it sometime, well, that's, that's their depression roots showing. And in the uh, popular art, you see a rise of sort of wise guy escapism. And so you see the, uh, whether it's the musicals or the gangster movies of that era, you are seeing a sort of a cynical, often New York-based understanding of how the world is corrupt and only suckers try to fight it. You go up the ladder as far as you can up the ladder before you got uh, knocked off. And then, you know, maybe at the end you learn a lesson or maybe at the end there's just a cynical quip and it's all over because uh, it's the depression. You got to get hard. That old trauma... Time to time to harden yourself up even yes. further. And this is where uh, a strict generational analysis sort of we would we don't want to say falls apart here, uh, but we will say takes a back seat because the depression is affecting both the lost generation who are having to soldier on and lose even more of their faith as you know capitalism, which at least had functioned relatively well during World War One, now also falls apart. And there's literally nothing to look for unless you're a fascist or a communist and the rising new generation, which will come to be known as the greatest generation for reasons that are a spoiler in 1938. But uh, the rising new generation comes of age into this, sees the generation before them, has broken all the old molds. Their only response can be sarcasm and, well, I guess we'll get to it because there is nothing bigger than themselves, they imagine, to reach out for. And again, we're talking about artists and cultural creators. Many, many millions of people uh, live perfectly happy lives, raise perfectly happy children, were not traumatized at all. But it turns out that if you have big problems, you work them out in art as opposed to other things. But the big problem of World War II comes along the greatest generation gets drawn into it. They whip fascism in Europe and, and in Asia, and then they come back home and they can't talk about it because it was too horrible. They thought they knew what everything was going to be like. They were all gangstery and, and smart alecky. They were Ben Hecht. And then they go off to Europe and war is apocalyptically bad. And they come back and they're like, well, we're never going to talk about this. We are only going to act out in sort of unimaginable emotional fury every now and again, but we're not going to talk about it. We're going to pull everything back and we're going to try and build a, a decent life. And it's those two warring tones of emotional darkness and determination to transcend it that create the sort of characteristic art of the 40s and 50s, especially the noir film, where the the worst thing that can happen to you is you're pulled into the world that you thought you'd left behind, that you're once more in a world where there is no exit, there is no moral out, the, the world that you thought you could build is is away from you by your own choice. Similarly, you have the sort of uh, Mike Hammery levels of, of, of violence that come into popular culture in a way that they, they kind of weren't in the 30s, grapefruits aside. There's a lot of shifting tonally, the sort of the the, the violent undertones of, of even the animated cartoons, right? Uh, the 30s animated cartoons, it's mostly dancing alphabet letters. 40s animated cartoons, it's Animals trying to murder each other, and that is not an accident, I think. Right. And on top of that, though, the other side of that is that the flight to normalcy, there is a lot of a false created normalcy that also runs through pop culture. So there's a sort of a determined innocence. We're going to pretend we're all, you know, American and innocent and apple pie. And there's a uh, and so in you see it in the 
musicals and the sunniness of the musicals and in the melodramas of Douglas Sirk, where they, which directly examines the difference between the uh, surface no- normality and then the weird, often in the 50s, Freudian undercurrent underneath, because uh, the repressed darkness, of course, is why, as we've mentioned countless times on the show, Freud is still important to people who want to understand the themes in art, particularly the art of this period. So that is also uh, part of that. And so, you know, even the comedies suddenly become very uh, determinedly uh, anodyne. And they sort of, on one hand, you see all of the big movie stars kind of being flattened out. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, but in these 50s westerns with sweet old Jimmy Stewart, underneath them is that undercurrent of repressed violence and, uh, you know, mental disturbance that is hidden underneath this sort of surface of official uh, normality. And this kind of continues along long enough for it to finally burst as another new generation comes along. This is, a genera- this is the first generation where teenagers are a thing. Mm-hmm. And this is as true in America as in uh, the U.S. and even in Japan. Suddenly there's uh, young people with money. They want to get away from their weird traumatized parents and uh, break through all of those uh, artificial uh, strictures that are, exist in order to make things uh, normal. And so you, in the 60s, the theme is liberation. And this theme exists on the political level of political liberation, also of personal and uh, sexual and romantic and artistic liberation. And so uh, once again, it's like the 20s. It's uh, time to uh, party. And uh, in certain places, there's also a class element to this. So the rise of liberative thinking in uh, the UK is also a response to the class structure. So uh, some of these first teenagers with money are working class and they finally say, you know what? I don't want to just be stomped on my whole life. I'm going to assert myself a little. And that's what powers the all sorts of uh, youth movements that uh, are uh, once again. And this is the uh, to fit gaming into it. And this is your fall of Delta Green era. Yep, absolutely. I think we can talk a little bit about the fact that obviously these uh, problem teens are the baby boom. They are responding not just to their parents, the uh, repressed World War II greatest generation parents, but also their slightly older cohort, the silent generation, who grew up knowing they were too young to fight in World War II, felt bad about that and uh, worked out that trauma in helping to build that world of normalcy. They're like, well, we can't, you know, we, we can't do that, but we can, we can have those happy singing cowboy Westerns. We can, and you begin to see in the stuff that they're making in the fifties, especially you see stuff that is now honestly calling back to older generations. They're like, maybe we can salvage some stuff that the lost generation thought that we couldn't have. And you begin to see the first sort of uh, nostalgia actually begins to come up in the fifties and in the, and in the early sixties as the, the silence take over. And of course that is just more things for the baby boomers to reject because they see not just the, you know, desire for normalcy on the part of their parents, but they see that the culture is aggressively trying to repopulate itself with things that they think are old and outmoded. And uh, the big teenager point that you made, Robin, I think that needs to be sort of underlined is there have always been rich teenagers who are jerks, but this is the first time that there has been mass prosperity and teenagers who could then be jerks. It, it's a whole new universe. And so the democrat, the vast democratization of the arts that happens in the sixties is 
often overlaps with this liberation, but things like rock and roll blowing up uh, that you can just play in your garage. You don't need any formal musical training uh, to, to do it. There's, you know, all manner of, um, you know, art that is, uh, you know, comes from within you. You don't have to go to France and learn to paint a cow. You can just blow it up. All of that sort of, you don't have to be, have any of the markers of class in order to create that creates the the new art. And it is this sort of chaos and freedom in the good and the, and the bad sense. It's certainly the Lovecraft that fall of Delta green deliberately takes on that in that game, whether or not you, the player might have sympathy with the kids, you, the character think that this is just another symptom of the world going to hell, because that is what everyone who got a, a haircut and a government ID in the sixties did think. And that is how fall of Delta green works with that. And so the, the issues of the older generation are the world is going to hell. And so that's when you begin to see the rise of the crime novel is, is this sort of, I don't understand what's happening and I don't like it. And then you get younger writers who are saying, that's right. Uh, you're not supposed to like it. And, and then that sort of call and response creates a lot of uh, what we think of as sort of the, the inner reaction of sixties uh, culture with plenty of people trying to sort of have their cake and eat it too. So you, you get things like camp Batman where old symbols made youthfully relevant while also defanging them politically. Right. It's, I mean, there's, a, there's always a callback. There's always a response. There's always a buyout in any cultural movement. Uh, and the, the generation of the sixties is the first generation that has a chance to sell out, right? The other generations were literally raised to sell out. There was no yeah. selling out. There All was no out. sell out is this can full of nuts and bolts. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, but now uh, you, you see the, um, the, the, the sellout and that leads us into the seventies, the era where it's like, Oh, we can't keep doing this forever. We are going to have to grow up and get jobs. Yeah. So, so John and Dennis and Scott knew what they right. were doing when they had Delta Green blow up at the end of the 60s. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, the 70s is the malaise generation. This is uh, not coincidentally a high point in American cinema when the uh, studio executives didn't know what to do. So they let auteurs run the show. Uh, we covered that in the horror essentials. So that's true across all the genres. And is at the time famously, as Jimmy Carter said in a, uh, a, a speech of uh, famous self-immolation. He called this a malaise. And mm -hmm. so you've got your uh, gas crisis. You've got a recession. Uh, every, all of the, uh, again, all of the, the hangover from the previous era's party is all coming due. And it's a big hangover indeed. And the most exemplary part of that for America, of course, is Watergate, which is, although small potatoes compared to certain things that people don't blink at now, uh, was enormously disillusioning at a time when so many people bought into the uh, myths that they had acquired during the, the flight to normalcy and even the, the period of liberation after that. Yeah. That the, that the attempt by the silent generation to rebuild really does take it in the chin between Watergate and uh, the loss in Vietnam that it's like, well, what are we even rebuilding classic Frederick Remington America for? If this is going to happen and that leads into a lot of that malaise and the generation that is brought up in that generation X, also known as the best generation to be part of, realize in the same way that the silence realized they missed the war, we realize, oh, we missed the party. We just get to clean up. That's great. And so our response is irony. I, I want to jump in there, Ken. And uh, we got to before we mention the irony, we got to get to the retrenchment of the 80s. The, OK, uh, the Reagan uh, revolution mercy. You know, we're just going to hit the reset button. That fi 50s thing that you just threw out the window, a bunch of us still like it. Yeah. Uh, and so this is the period where you have 
uh, and this is reflected in uh, back to sort of a kind of uh, anodyne uh, sort of cute poppy uh, music. And uh, in cinema, this is the auteurists uh, being trampled by the blockbuster and uh, Jaws and Star Wars, which are two uh, titles that are uh, perfect to inaugurate my letterbox list that I have to make whenever we, we <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> add to whenever we uh, mention a film, that the, uh, the blockbuster aesthetic, which in film we're still very much wedded to, begins. And this is very much about nostalgia and bringing in uh, escapism, old structures. Let's go back to normal. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, we got a movie star president. We got our uh, picket fences. But as you suggest, uh, Ken, every reaction has a counter-reaction. And then, uh, in reaction to the Reagan 80s, we have the ironic, cynical 90s. Speaking of someone who was ironic and cynical throughout the 80s, it was not a reaction to Reagan. It was a reaction to the 70s. That said, people found ever more good reasons to be ironic about stuff. Uh, the retrenchment, a lot of that that you talk about is driven by the sort of, uh, I mean, your, your examples, Spielberg and Lucas are both baby boomers, right? They're both those baby boom auteurs who we hate to say sell out because they were both expressing their truest, truest vision. They just happened to do it in a way that made giant piles of money. They weren't sellouts at all. That was their no. authentic selves coming to the screen. It's the people who jumped onto them and, and would have wanted to be making Serpico, but instead made a sequel to Batman. Those were the sellouts. <laughs> Those are the sellouts. So the, uh, the, the ironic response in art is, I, I think, uh, less so unless you count the sort of postmodernism as an irony that the notion of, again, trying what the silent generation tried in the 40s and 50s of reaching back and finding things. This is partly the Reagan nostalgia, as you mentioned. This is partly just a notion that if nothing matters, then let's at least have the front of the building look nice. But the irony in art, a lot of it is is driven into literature. There's some of it into, I mean, it's not an, uh, an accident. The, the 80s and the 90s are sort of the, the high watermark of the ironic comedy. Even a comedy as uh, perfect as Ghostbusters is fundamentally ironic. That sort of the, the, the literature and narrative arts are where the, the irony specifically uh, flowers. And uh, a lot of that is reaching back and trying to repurpose old things and in a in a way not of saying this is the way things ought to be but of hey this look kind of cool what do you think and in that sort of uh, spirit of, of of mashup and an experiment that led into the sort of 90s being an era where a lot of different sort of things popped up and, and came back down and uh after after nirvana expressed uh ironic rage that pretty much you know rock music was like well we're done <laughs> it's it's all it's all rap and pop hope you guys like that <laughs> right and uh other landmarks of of the ironic era are uh letterman david letterman's talk show yes in its, in its prime which was the writers conceived of it as a tiny tugboat trying to destroy the world of entertainment and uh you didn't get more ironic than that and mm -hmm. in the uh, world of cinema the matrix is the uh, most ironic blockbuster because it's all about you know guess what this world this world we think we live in, uh, not only does it suck, but uh, there's an even suckier one underneath it, yep. which inexplicably we're going to fight <laughs> to, to restore uh, because we're a little bit confused in the uh, in the 90s. But uh, aren't these mirror shades great? Well, first of all, they were great. I don't know what you're asking. So this is the, the, the sort of the the moment that Generation X has to shine is creating art for the for the 90s. And then uh, the millennials, uh, the next generation after that, they grow up sort of in the, well, if that's what we're trying, let's try it. And then 
oh no, 9-11 happens. Now everyone has to be serious again. And, uh, you know, we uh, go into two more wars in America and in many other countries around the world. The sort of the global atmosphere of uh, government-induced and in some cases justified paranoia, that has a giant impact on the culture. That's where you begin to see uh, the reinvention of the spy movie. Uh, the Bourne trilogy, obviously, uh, comes right out of this, while theoretically being an angry, ironic Gen X response to it is also a perfect encapsulation of it, because as Spielberg and Lucas have shown us, that's the way to actually uh, touch a nerve is to say something you really, really mean, but in a way that everyone will enjoy on the sort of pre-Lost Generation level, right? Yes. Pour out your heart, but make it fast paced and have uh, maybe some punching in it. That's mm-hmm. good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So again, we have another era where suddenly uh, nothing seems to matter or everything seems to be kind of great, or at least uh, in this case, sucky in a way we can enjoy. And then boom, the towers come down and everything uh, changes. And uh, with it, there's sort of a, a kind of a covert recession where it's like homeownership. You know what? We're just going to stop building affordable housing stock for even the middle class. We're just going to stop. And uh, we're going to find all these efficiencies in the workplace where, yeah, you're not going to really have a long career in any one place. And uh, welcome to the gig economy. And so, again, uh, the war on terror is very serious, very uh, po-faced. There's, of course, a theme of torture uh, run, begins to run through uh, much of pop culture uh, as a reflection of uh, uh, repressed guilt and or sometimes a not-so-covert celebration of uh, what's being done in the name of the, uh, this open-ended war against uh, not only enemies, but an abstract concept. But even that runs out of steam. And I think that brings us to the a new era, which I will, uh, you know, w- without a, a hint can of any sort of self-reflection or patting myself on the back. We're now in the this is normal now era, where even the verities, at least the global war and terror era had verities. They sucked, but, <laughs> they, but were they were there. there. Yep. And now it's like, you know what? You know, consensus reality. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 that's we're grifters. We can't make money off of us. consensus reality. And uh, also, maybe we'd like to uh, authoritarianism. We haven't tried that in a while. Uh, it's been a good uh, the people in the depression and the, the, the greatest generation. They're kind of off the map, mostly. So let's uh, let's see if we can bring back all of those things, because there's uh, there's some design statements that they made that we find attractive. And, uh, you know, also uh uh, racism and various other forms of uh, hatred as a means of mass motivation and oh yeah disinformation let's uh let's not uh, uh just uh have propaganda but let's just explode everybody's entire sense of what reality even is or whether vaccines work or let's just and let's just keep finding new things and and so now i think we are in an, an unmoored era where the uh, sort of putin style postmodern disinformation authoritarianism that was pioneered in their uh, crazy wild 90s because of course there's all sorts of places in the world and all sorts of uh, population groups even in the areas that we've been talking about and familiar with who don't experience history in this way at all they have entirely different concerns and uh, you know if you're russian or you're from vietnam or uh Cuba, you have a whole different set of generational markers that, of course, we're not even getting to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, 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 the this is normal now generation. And you talk about the disintermediation of, of fact and truth, uh, the previous disintermediation of the economy, the fact that the Internet allows 
the rapid and fluid merging acquisition and destruction of uh, entire industries, not just companies, has created now a world where we are on the on the tippy toe steps of once more, like before the lost generation, there being no pop culture because there's no mass to cult for. There are certainly people with, you know, gigantic followings, your Taylor Swifts, but is there a giant movement of, of earnest uh, blonde pop singers the way that there was in the 2000s? Not really. There's T-Swift, and if you don't like T-Swift, you've got your Rihanna, you got your Beyonce, you got lots of other things, but there's not a, a coalescence, a, a direction. Everything's sort of in its own direction, just bouncing around. This is much of it. This is just mechanical because the internet allows uh, microcultures to blow up, but it's, I think, not a mistake that the art that is still driving film is the art of the response to the war on terror is uh superheroes is uh we don't know if we believe our country right now but we still believe in the scarlet witch and so you know batman trilogy was a, a deliberate attempt to respond to the war on terror uh the marvel universe could be seen as a, an attempt to flee from the war on terror into a, a cartoon world that we don't care about so much sort of uh, its own flight to normalcy if you will and again it's being made by you know generation x people by and large people for whom taking something from the past trying it on for size hoping it works it's our desperate last go-to because actually creating is is hard and weird and now there's no market for it anymore so <laughs> i i think that the uh, the the sort of the superhero generation is it's almost by default right that that no one has a response to the thing that you can't respond to because you can't you, you can't even get your hand around it. Right. And, and it's a retrenchment of the retrenchment that the mm -hmm. original retrenchment is the first blockbusters is uh, Indiana Jones and, and Star Wars and, and Richard Donner, Superman, speaking of Richard superheroes, Donner, Superman. And now uh, there are, you know, levels of response to response to response to that, that the business model is still working and uh, you can continue to repurpose that sort of entertainment uh, in a way that uh, I think, as you suggest quite aptly, is papering over the way that the the center is looking like it's not going to hold. Uh, so, Ken, uh, you'll be surprised to learn that uh, in our survey of the entire culture of a century, we went slightly over time on this segment. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> yeah. so before we incur any more editing fees from our uh, beautiful and talented editor, uh, Rob Borges, it's time for us to flee to another segment. Fear is a fractal. And your world is a lie. A horror freed from an antique book reverberates through reality. Shaking things, reordering them and making them run like wax. Doors open to endless Victorian hallways. Where threats stalk the shadows on clockwork limbs, cold metal seeking the warmth of blood and bone. But don't despair. There is hope. A king waits for us. And Impossible Landscapes, the first campaign for Delta Green, the role-playing game, waits for you. In PDF now, hardback in May. Twice as big a book as Arc Dream planned. Those naive fools. Hailed as one of the best RPG campaigns ever made. And a masterpiece of surreal horror. While your mind is broken and battered by Impossible Landscapes. Also sees the bonus new release. Delta Green Static Protocol. 
which reorganizes the intricate timeline that precedes the main action of impossible landscapes and entries that an ambitious handler can sprinkle in front of players to lure them deeper and deeper into research god help them that's impossible landscapes and its companion static protocol both from the freshly shattered collective psyches of arc dream publishing It's time once more to wend our way up the creepity cogweb stairs, where we're going to pause on the landing to wave to the charming photo of the uh, king of the fire salamanders. He's as uh, happy and perky as ever, although he's generating a lot of flame, and head on in to the parlor of the consulting occultist, where beloved Patreon backer Rich Ranallo wants to uh, know the full skinny on something that we teased a while back in our discussion of TikTok cursed rocks, and that is Grabavoy code numbers. Uh, which is, uh, speaking of things being retrenched and repurposed, is uh, is numerology in the Kabbalah for a whole new generation of rubes, or believers. Yes. Uh, Ken? <laughs> it's Kabbalah without the math, just what you've exactly. always wanted, and also without having to be a 40-year-old Jewish man. Basically, this is, I, I guess we can sort of go backwards, uh, talk about what it is, and then uh, where it came from, and then if we have time, we can go into actual Grigory Grabovoy, who is a piece of work. But the basic notion is that in the sort of broadly speaking new age, the um, self-realization generation, which is a bigger world than just magic, it goes into your Norman Vincent Peale power of positive thinking type stuff as well. The the culture of sales in America that began in the 19-teens and 20s. Yes, there that's is, all magical people. <laughs> yes, there is a generalized understanding of a thing called manifestation. And in this case, it's you say, I really, really, really want to date that cute boy. I really, really, and you think about it and you are positive about it. And sure enough, the cute boy will like you. And that is basically power of positive thinking. And then you can add crystals as we talked about with your Moldavite, or now you can add magic numbers and the magic numbers are just long strings of pointless digits. So for example, uh, the number for entrepreneurship is seven, one, nine, seven, four, one, three, one, nine, eight, one. And now that I've said it, I'm sure that Robin and I will get lots of business offers because yes, I've was, spoken that word, that uh, right out into the ether and, and I've made it a thing, but you could also write it on your arm. You could uh, write it in your dream journal. You could put it on a piece of paper under your, under your pillow at night. All the things that you could do with Greco-Roman papyri, Robin, you can do with Grabavoy numbers. And uh, there are YouTube tutorials. Uh, there's CDs or um, uh, MP3s that you can buy that have Grabavoy numbers being recited. So you can fall asleep to someone reciting the number to date that cute boy or whatever it is. Or entrepreneurship, 719-741-31981. You can, you can do that. And there's uh, Grabavoy numbers to rearrange the universe. And the way that this works, and I cannot emphasize <laughs> the quotes around works hard enough is thanks to a science, which is not a science called radionics. And this was a pseudoscience invented in 1909 by a guy named Albert Abrams. And he said that everything, now that we know that everything has an energetic component, now that Einstein has taught us that all matter is energy, you can just tweak that energy with this dial on this. Don't open the box. The box, I'm the dial is the important thing. You can tweak it with the dial and I will tweak the dial for you because I'm a trained radionicist and you pay me and I will retune you like a radio. Yeah, you, you don't want to build an automatic radionics machine. No, you have that's to have one that comes yeah. with a consulting contract okay, with a dial. And I will then retune you to receive, you know, money or love or whatever it is that you're trying to uh, do. And this notion of tuning people like a radio has lasted all the way now into 
the uh, internet age, where instead of being thought of as a tuning you like a dial, it's being thought of as cheat codes for the universe. So in the same way that you can put in a, a special routine and, and win at Call of Duty, now you can put in a special number and win at life. And Grabavoy has his own radionic device. Uh, Albert Abrams, you'll be glad to know, made a ton of money and then got prosecuted for fraud. Uh, Grabavoy, Grigory Grabavoy, um, he's from Kazakhstan originally, Soviet uh, Union, long, exciting career. But he has a device called the PRK1U. And what it does is it magnifies your idea. So your idea is like a line of computer code. And what his device, the PRK1U does, is it amplifies that line of computer code and writes it into more of the universe, sort of. And so by amplifying that idea, you can have, you know, wonderful, magical things happen. The PRK1U goes for 9,700 euro. If you want to buy one, Robin, you were saying um, uh, you can't buy one. Well, now you can. Or... If you want a remote access to one being operated by Gravavoid, that's only 1,200 euro. So that's a, that's a savings. Um, he has been promoting these codes uh, since 2011. He wrote a book in 1999 called Restoration of the Human Organism Through Concentration on Numbers, which is sort of the basis for this system, if I may use the word system incorrectly. <laughs> that's, that's why I got a snappy title. Yes. It moved onto Pinterest in 2016, moved onto YouTube in 2019, and then uh, it sort of had its big blow up when a Hong Kong actor named Chilam promoted the anti-epidemic Grabovoy numbers to fight COVID. In 2020, it blew up on Weibo, which is the Chinese social media, and as though there was some sort of connection between Chinese social media and TikTok, now it's on TikTok, and there's been a hundred million views since uh, early 2021 and late 2020 on TikTok of Grabavoy codes, and it's a, a giant deal. And first of all, I want to just emphasize that the kids on the TikTok are all delightful kids. I, I know I say nothing against the Zoomers. I love them all. Right, because but, they don't know what else Gregory Grabavoy has gone up to. <laughs> right, they're just they're just simple teens that want to date a cute boy or entrepreneurship. Seven one nine seven four one three one nine eight one. They're just good kids. They're not to blame for this. The person to blame is Gregory Grabavoy, who after going to school for mechanical engineering in Tashkent, uh, got a job doing quote unquote non-sensory diagnosis of aircraft for the Uzbekistan government from 1991 to 1996. And given that he was taking good money to prevent a dictator's plane from crashing with magic, he must have been so glad to get out of Uzbekistan before a plane crashed. You have no idea how happy he must have been. That's what we call in the psychic fraud business a, a nail-biter. A nail-biter, exactly. So he realizes that this is a, a job that can only have one ending, goes to Bulgaria, meets a Bulgarian psychic named Baba Vanga. Now, according to boring old eyewitnesses and film testimony, she threw him out on his ear because he was a fraud. And by the way, I don't think you have to be a psychic to find that out, but good for you, Baba Vanga. But he said she recognized that I was actually a powerful messenger. So he comes back to Russia, sets up a bunch of scams and self-help movements, political parties slash pyramid scheme called Drug, D-R-U-G-G, in which among the things that are wrong with the universe, not just incorrect numbers, but also maybe the Jews, runs a big pyramid scheme, tries to sell a crystal module that will cut the impact of a nuclear device, uh, tries to sell it to nuclear uh, plants. Uh, goes around psychically healing nuclear plants, et cetera, et cetera. In 2004, he announces that he's the second coming of Jesus and also starts to get into trouble. Uh, first of all, his movement has a political aspect to it. So he's on the Putin radar now. 
Also, uh, he forged the signature of the president of Kazakhstan. Not cool. And he had lots of pictures. Well, forgery of, was a big, big trait of the original cheeses. So yeah, well, yeah, you know, that's they, when he wasn't carpenting, he was yeah. using Photoshop to make it look like he knew the president of Kazakhstan. Yeah. And so uh, the Kazakhstan government was like, this is not good. And so Putin, always a, a friend to his neighbors, I'm sure, <laughs> certainly his neighbors with immense fields of natural gas says, well, then we're going to uh, start leaning on this guy. Uh, in 2008, after the Baslan massacre, uh, which he had criticized the Putin government on the Baslan massacre and was going around telling the parents that he could resurrect their children for money, of course, because he is a horrible human being. In 2008, the Russian government puts him on trial for that, among other things. He's sentenced to 10 years. He does three and heads off to Serbia, which is where he lives now, selling the PRK1U and uh, providing uh, cheat codes for the universe for the kids on the TikTok or for anyone who wants to engage in entrepreneurship 719-741-31981. So in an occult game, you don't really need anything more than what you've already heard. <laughs> right. So you can easily have this sort of shifty, griftery uh, uh, character that you uh, go and visit and try and figure out, you know, the one thing that he really knows. You know, he maybe he's got one number that actually works, and that's the mm -hmm. one he's careful never to give anybody or, or speak aloud. You can imagine a, a sort of a modern-day Rasputin-like uh, supervillain who defeats your superhero PCs by... Uh, reciting the number combinations that uh, deactivate uh, their various uh, superpowers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, this guy's right up the uh, Ezoterrorist Alley. Uh, you could create a version of him who's leading an Ezoterrorist cell, or a cell could be using uh, what he's doing as a, as a cover for their operation, And uh, because, of course, they're always trying to increase human credulity. And, and what better methodology for that than YouTube tutorials where people uh, mutter vague instructions, and then you somehow uh, act on them. And, of course, in the uh, uh, This is Normal Now setting of the Yellow King, well, you can pretty easily uh, figure that, uh, yeah, he's figured the numerical equivalent of the of the yellow sign. It exists uh, in all sorts of different forms, not just in the visual, it exists in the mathematical form. And one of the Grabovoi numbers is the yellow sign, and they're very carefully spreading that to suggestible minds in order to effectuate the next a conquest of the world by the unwitting servitors of the king in yellow. Yeah, obviously you can, you know, lean into the Kabbalah aspect of it. And you say that one of those numbers is actually a secret name of Nirlathotep or uh, Ramsey Campbell's great elder god Daloth who exists as a mathematical abstraction. He's an ideal subject for a Grabovoi number. Uh, Mark Laidlaw's uh, terrific novel, The 37th Mandela, which is about a new age uh, shyster who accidentally releases Lovecraftian monsters with his nonsense. Read that novel and uh, repurpose it into uh, your adventure. It's, it's literally perfect for the job. And you can also have, you know, you, we, we've got a, another psychic. We've got a Bulgarian psychic who maybe knows the secret of, of Grabovoi and tracking down Baba Vanga and getting her to help you uh, can be your, your, your adventure if you're doing that. And of course, this is an example of how things spread virally. So even if you're not using the Grabovoi numbers themselves, maybe you've got something else that spread virally. Maybe, uh, you know, um, the, the TikTok kids all do little dances. Maybe there's a little dance that's from the pages of the Yellow King, the play, and now it's spreading all over after some uh, K-pop group did it. And now it's all over the internet. And how do you, how do you deal with that, Robin, in a world of uh, being never now? How do you? Uh, well, uh, that's just entirely unclear to me, but I think, 
we have just found, I've just come across the podcast ending number, which is 9717-31876. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep our numbers lucky by pitching in alongside such beloved Patreon backers as... Ernest Muller. Garrett Fitzgerald. Hyperlexic. Jesse Lowe. And Tom Abella. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Combine your love of cats and your love of tentacles with our latest design, Tentacle Cat. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.